I remember the very first fight that me and Jamie got into. So we were married in August, had a blissful honeymoon in Hawaii, came back, moved to Austin, Texas, set up a brand new apartment, started new jobs, and just had that honeymoon phase going on until about December. And I remember our very first fight was we go drive into the store and we're going we're gonna to buy Christmas as a family for the first time. As a couple, we're going to get our own Christmas tree and our own ornaments. And so we're, we're smitten, we're Twitter-pated, we're in love. This is going to be euphoric to go shopping together. And I said, oh, babe, honey, sweetie, darling, dear, because that's why I always talk to her. I said, I cannot wait to go into this store and to buy an artificial tree and to buy some brand new, super cool, trendy ornaments to hang on that tree. And she said, oh, darling, honey, sweetie, dear, that sounds wonderful. I think we'll really enjoy looking at those fake trees because we're going to go buy a real tree and we're going to put homemade ornaments on it. And I was like, oh, pumpkin pie, sweetie, we're not hanging your popsicle stick reindeer you made in the first grade on our dang Christmas tree. And then it was on. The war of words began and we started screaming at each other in the car. We didn't even end up with anything. We just wound up going back to our two foot square apartment and just like each person stand in a square foot and like turn around and cry. And it was terrible, right? I remember that. There's nothing like combining some family traditions for the very first time to spark some real good holiday festive arguments, right? There's so much at Christmas that we can disagree on. Where to spend the holidays, right? That's always a fun one to decide. How many presents to buy the kids? That's a good one. I remember when I was a pastor in Austin, uh, one woman, one family, they only gave their kids three presents at Christmas. I'm like, three? How do your kids not revolt? How do you get away with that? And she goes, simple. I tell them this. Jesus only got three presents and you ain't no better than Jesus. (laughs) I like that, right? I love that. Right, but there's all these things we can disagree about. So let's, let's have a little uh, active participation here. I'm going to say some things, and you tell me which one's right. If you're watching online, shout out in your house, put in the comments. Um, but do you open presents on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve? Oh, a heretic right here said Christmas Eve. Oh, my goodness. Um, do we clean up the wrapping paper as we go, or we just leave a mess in the middle? You got to clean it up. Please clean it up, okay? Just my OCD or CDO, because that's in alphabetical order, can't handle the mess. Um, do we open all our gifts at once? Do we take turns going one by one? There, okay, there we go. Um, do you have turkey or ham for Christmas? No, you're in Texas. You smoke a brisket, okay? That's right. That's all I'm be doing, smoking a Christmas brisket. Um, Can we listen to Christmas music before or after Thanksgiving? It's actually after the 4th of July. It's all good. That's what, that's, well, you know, thinking about the best movie, which version of the Grinch and is Die Hard really a Christmas movie? (laughs) See, there's so much to disagree about when it comes to Christmas. And no matter what we do, no matter what kind of wrapping paper we use, if we put a star or an angel, it should be an angel on the top of your Christmas tree. The whole goal is not to miss the point. Sure, we can bicker and make fun and what this and that tradition, right? But to not to miss the point that Christmas is about Jesus. When we look back at what has happened, how he came, his first advent, his first arrival, his first coming, and what that means for us. 
But that's only about 50% of the Christmas celebration. We should also look forward to his second advent, his second coming, his second arrival, and what that will mean. The restoration and reconciliation of the entire universe. And in Christmas, we kind of sit in between those and we celebrate that and look about that. Now today in our passage, they're in the middle of a holiday season. They're right in the middle of a festival, the Feast of Booths. And here's what's going to happen in our passage. This is what we're going to see. There's going to be so much bickering and arguing and back and forth and who's right and who's wrong. And it's going to get nasty, right? They're going to start calling each other names. They're going to accuse each other. Then they're going to bring someone's mom into it, right? It's never good when moms get brought up in an argument. But that's what's going to happen. But, but ultimately, here's what I think. The people who are arguing with Jesus, they just miss it. They miss the entire point of the festival, right? They're looking back, but they may not be looking forward to what the festival points to. And I want us to think, are we missing it? Are we deceived in the same way that they are? Are we settling for lesser, like Jesus says that they are? So grab your scripture, turn to John chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 12. John chapter 8, verse 12. And as you're turning there, let me kind of set up the context, give you some visual imagery of, of what is going on. It's a holiday. It's a festival. There's three pilgrimage festivals, and this is one of them. The Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacle, where every Jewish male over the age of 12, 20-mile radius, comes into Jerusalem. This is party time. This is celebration time. Okay, and they're here to do the Feast of Booths or Tabernacle, and that's what it is. It's a remembrance, partly, of the wilderness wanderings. When God delivered his people out of Egyptian slavery, but then they were wandering in the desert for 40 years, and what were they living in? Booths. Tents, tabernacle, temporary dwelling. And so God institutes and gives them this feast partly to look back and to remember that. And so there's some things that happen there that, that they use imagery and symbolism in their festival to remember and to celebrate. Okay, so one is what they do is, is a big deal in the wilderness wanderings was about water. They were dying of thirst in the wilderness and God brought water out of a rock. And so in the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacle, what they would do every single day, it's an eight-day feast. It starts on a Shabbat, it goes seven days and ends on a Shabbat. Every day during those seven days, right, they would, they would go down, the priest would go down to the spring of Siloam and they'd, they'd dip water from the spring. And they carry the spring back to the temple. And there they would take it and they would pour it on the stone altar to remember that God brought water out of a rock. This was symbolism for them. So they could celebrate that. Another thing that happened in the wilderness wanderings is how do you know where to go? Like you're in a desert for 40 years. Like, what do you do? Like, well, there's no GPS or anything. And so what God did is he provided direction. He provided vision for them in the form of a pillar by day or a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Light, a giant pillar of fire, light. And so wherever the light went, they just kind of pick up their tents and they just kind of follow the light. And the light would stop and they put it down. The pillar of fire would move and they'd move again. They did this for 40 years. Light, fire was a big deal in the wilderness wanderings. So how do they incorporate it into the Feast of Tabernacle? Well, there in the temple complex, the outer courts, the, the court of the Gentiles, and there's another inner court, the court of women, probably there in the court of women. 
they would erect 75-foot-tall menorahs, candles, right? Could you imagine a seven-story? This is a big deal. And then what they would do is they'd take all the young whippersnappers, the youth who didn't have bad backs, and they'd make them take 20-gallon pitchers of oil. And they'd carry them up to the top of the menorah, and they'd fill up the candle with 20 gallons of oil per one. And then they're like, um, what are we going to use for a wick? I don't know who came up with this. There's a lot of stupid ideas, right? But someone in the meeting on what kind of wick they're going to use said, hey, let's use the priest old undergarments. And they're like, great deal. Go get them, right? And so to have a giant wick big enough for a 75-foot-tall menorah, they would take the priest old drawers and they light it on fire, right? Could you imagine walking out of here today and we got a surprise for you. There's a 75-foot-tall candle with Ron's drawers coming out of the top and we put them on fire, right? This is crazy. But it's to signify like how important light and fire was in the wilderness wanderings. And so this is in the temple complex. You've been to Israel, Jerusalem or the Temple Mount. You know, there's like this hill. It sits up. It's, it's Mount Moriah where, where Abraham took Isaac up for the sacrifice. It's that is like where the Dome of the Rock is. And on each side, there's these valleys, the Kidron Valley and the Valley of Hinnom. And, and, and so there, as it's kind of elevated, the light would be all over Jerusalem. It's said in the Talmud that there's not a courtyard in Jerusalem that didn't see the light from these candles. This is the background. This is the setting. This is the party and the festival that they are in. And yes, it looked backwards, but I also think God gave it to them to look forward. Yes, there's some water imagery in the past, but think about the water imagery coming forward. We read in Zechariah 14. There will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, that neither day nor night, but at evening time, there shall be a light. And on that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. Old Testament prophecy about one day will come talking about light and water. Earlier at the Feast of Booths, Jesus stands up and he says this, right? As they've been pouring the water over the stone, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then we have the privilege of looking in Revelation 22 when it says, The angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. This is in the eternal state. And in 22.5 it says, Night will be no more. There will be no need of light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and he will reign forever and ever. Yes, the festival was to remember what God had done, but it also pointed to what God was going to do. And this water and light imagery was so important. But honestly, I think they missed it. They got in these disagreements. They just didn't understand. So Jesus kind of pulls them in and says, let's have a little chat, you and I, about who you think I am. I've been showing you through signs and wonders and miracles. Now I'm just going to say it to you. I'm going to get real explicit on who you think I am. And so he draws them in, right? And he starts to preach. Imagine the context. Maybe Jesus is standing under the 75-foot-tall menorah. And then John 8, 12, he says this. Jesus spoke to them saying, I, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk 
in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is such an important statement in the gospel of John. Only seven times in the gospel does John have Jesus recorded saying, I am something. The first one was in chapter six when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. This is number two of seven where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And I love that Jesus uses that analogy, right? There's so many similarities between Jesus and light. You can have a great devotion time just thinking about that. What are the similarities between Jesus and light? But here's what we know. Light provides food. Light provides vision and direction. It provides life and warmth. And light provides energy and sterilization. And all through scripture, there's all these references to light. In Psalm 27, it says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. In Psalm 119, it says, the word of God is a light to guide the path of those who cherish instructions. So in the middle of all that imagery, Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. And it's cool even to compare light to darkness. And so read some things to you, kind of like scientifically what we've studied and what it does to people about darkness, but you just take it and think spiritual terms in your mind. Science has studied and suggests that darkness can do all kinds of things to the human body and the brain. Darkness can make us more likely to cheat and steal, make more mistakes, commit more unethical behavior, become more prone to sickness, sleep deprivation, and hallucinations which is believing what is not true or not real. Now, when you put that in spiritual terms, people who live in darkness, they believe things that are not true. And Jesus stands up, he says, I am the light of the world. So what does that mean precisely, being the light of the world? Here's three things. Number one, it means that there is no other true light than Jesus. He's not a light in the world. He is the definite article light of the entire world. There's no other true light than Jesus. And so in my mind, I start kind of comparing Jesus to some other kind of like claims of light. And I imagine Jesus being like the sun, this like all-powerful being, right? It just illuminates everything, provides warmth and energy and brings life to the world. Verse, a little flashlight, a little artificial light, right? And maybe your little artificial light, it can give a little bit of direction. It can illuminate some things, but in the end, it kind of craps out. It needs new batteries and it breaks. And that's kind of the comparison. Or maybe there's things in our world, they're, they're not artificial light, but they just have the appearance of light. Think about the moon. The moon doesn't produce any light in and of itself. It just kind of borrows and mirrors and reflects the light of the sun. And I think there's things in our world that do that. They just kind of mirror and reflect the true source of light, but it's altered. I mean, this is the genius of Satan, right? It's not always a complete antagonistic uh, antithesis approach to God. But G or Satan, what he does is he takes the good gifts of God and he perverts them. He, he twists them. He gives the appearance of light, but it's not the true light. What else does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? It means that everyone needs Jesus as their light. If he is the light of the world, it means you and I can't see anything the way we should without Jesus. 
The third thing it means is this, is that Jesus being the light of the world, is that the world was made for, you were meant for this light. It's like our eyes, right? They're not meant to be in darkness. They're meant to be in light, to absorb light. And when we enter into dark environments, our, our eyes start to open up and change because it's trying to absorb light because it was meant for light. In the same way, I think our soul, when we're in the midst of darkness, it just tries to open up and search for any sort of light it can have. We were meant for the light of Jesus. And light is always connected to life. John 1, 4, in him was life. And life was the light of men. So here in John 8, 12, he's saying, if you follow Jesus, you will have the light of life. Now you may, you will, if you follow Jesus, you will have the light of life. So I ask you, what do you want to be your light source? What do you want to follow? What do you want to trust in for vision and direction and provision, a little artificial light? Or do you want to follow and trust in Jesus, the Son who illuminates everything, has all power, who knows all? This is what we're called to do is walk in that light. And what's interesting here, verses 13 through 29, there's no other mention of light. For as big and important as a statement as this is, they don't talk about it anymore. The people who are hearing this and receiving this, they just go like, well, you say you're the lie of the world, but prove it. Back it up. Where's your witnesses? And, and, and Jesus is like, look, light doesn't need to prove its existence. When light shows up, it just exists. All light can really do is point back to the source. And so that's what Jesus is going to do here. Right? So like, where's your witness? He goes, I get it. You're stuck in the Old Testament mindset, Deuteronomy 19.15. There needs to be two witnesses to prove anything. So he's just like, all right, I'll play the game. I bear witness about myself. And they're like, you can't do that. And he's like, I can. If you're Jesus, you can bear witness about yourself. And he goes, okay, fine. We'll keep playing. The Father bears witness about me. Remember the whole baptism scene where like the sky's up enough and the dove came down and God was like, this is my son, right? That's probably a good sign. He goes, you want another one? Just for fun, we'll throw three in there. How about when you lift me up and you crucify me and then I raise from the dead and I ascend when I am lifted up to the right hand of God, that'll show you I'm the light of the world. There's three, right? And so he says that and they kind of have this back and forth. And in verse 30, here's what we see is this. As he was saying these things, many, not all, but many believed in him. Some bickered, who were you? Who's your father? How do you bear witness about yourself? And Jesus is saying like, you don't know me. You don't know my father. You can't go where I'm going. I'm from above. You're from below. And so there's this bickering going back and forth between a few of them. But many, many believed. And it's awesome. But here's the deal. Jesus doesn't stop there and go, oh, so glad you believed. He pushes into them a little bit because Jesus is never interested in multiplying numbers of converts if they're not genuine believers. He's like, oh, that's, that's nice, but have you counted the cost? Do you know what it means to follow me and be a genuine believer and be a true disciple? And the reason he's so adamant about this is because the most dangerous spiritual state we can be in is to recognize the truth about God but do nothing about it. Because that puts you in the camp with Satan, 
who knows the truth about God, but doesn't do anything about it. And, and so Jesus leans in here. He goes, okay, let's challenge that belief a little bit. He says in verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who have believed, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciple. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. When he uses the word, you'll truly be my disciple. What is he talking about? What he's talking about are genuine believers, real converts, true disciples, true Christians. This is what he is referencing. When he's using that term in the word, what does he mean by that? It's not, not in the words of Jesus, but in the word singular. The way we think about it, it's, it's not just the Bible. It's not less than that, but it's so much more than that. When he uses this term in the word, it's almost like it's a summation of all of Jesus' teaching, and a summation of everything that he is. That's what he says. That's the word. And he says, and if you abide in that word, that summation, the totality of who Jesus is teaching. Now, abide is a word that means to remain in to be constant in, to persist in, to persevere in, like never ceasing. Abide in the word. And so the way I try to think about this is like, if you've ever been in pain, maybe you can understand what it means to abide in the word. Because for me, every now and then, I'll just bend over time my shoe and I'll come up crooked, you know, and I'll be like that for a week. And I'm in pain, my back's locked up. And so like, I'm always aware of it. It's constant. It persists. It remains. It affects everything I'm thinking it about. Everything I'm doing is affected. And that's what it means to abide in Jesus, is to remain in him, to persist in him. And everything you think about and everything you do is affected by it. That's abiding in Jesus, remaining. John Piper describes it in this way. He says to abide in Jesus' word means not ceasing, to be persuaded by its truth and never elevating any other truth above it. To abide in Jesus' word means not ceasing to be attracted by the beauty and the value and never seeing anything is more beautiful and valuable than the word of Jesus. Abiding in Jesus' word means not ceasing to rest in its grace and its power, never turning away as though there's a greater peace that can be found anywhere else. Abiding in Jesus' word means never ceasing to, to eat and to drink from the bread of heaven and living water as if life could be sustained anywhere else. Abiding means never ceasing to walk in the light of the word as though any other light could show the secrets of life. You want to know if you're a Christian? You want to know if you're a true believer, a genuine convert? This is the test. Do you abide in Jesus and his word? And that's what Jesus says. He goes, true disciples remain in me. Such a person obeys his word. They would seek to understand it better. They find it more precious. They find it more controlling precisely when others oppose it. Right? It's easy to be superficially attracted to Jesus. But the real test for conversion is abiding. It's like this magnetic force that draws you in, like you hunger and thirst and long and yearn for it. My friend, if you do not have a longing for Jesus, you may not be a true disciple. 
Because Christianity is not about knowing some stuff about Jesus or doing some stuff for Jesus. It's about a relationship with him. A real and deep, intimate, passionate, growing relationship. That's what it means to abide. The verse says, when we abide in the word, we'll know the truth. Which begs the question, what is the truth? We know this from the Gospel of John. Later on, Jesus will say, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who is the truth. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who can set you free. No one else, nothing else on earth can do that. It is Jesus alone. The crazy thing is, people don't even really know they're in bondage, oftentimes. These people didn't. They totally didn't get it. And Jesus calls them out on it. These people, like so many in our culture today, would say, like, I can do whatever I want. That's not freedom. That's slavery. Because you do whatever you want, you are enslaved and you are in bondage to your desires and your flesh and your wicked and deceitful heart. True freedom is not to do what you want, but to do the will of God forever. That is true freedom. And so they're experiencing a false sense of freedom. And so Jesus talks to them about this, verse 33. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. And we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you're free indeed. And they show that they are not abiding in his word. Right? They're like, yeah, you're the light. We don't want to walk in darkness. Sure, we'll believe you. And he's like, you got to abide in my word. Then he gives them some word. And what do they do? They don't abide in it. They question it. They contradict it. And they attack it. They're not abiding. And nobody wants to hear that they're a slave. Nobody likes that, right? Especially not America. Right? We're like, let freedom ring. We put liberty on all our coins for liberty and justice for all. This is like the freedom nation. Right? But Jesus leans in and he says, no, 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 no. You're actually enslaved to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, right? And so Jesus is the truth, and he came to set us free from sin and eternal death and eternal condemnation. He's the only one who can do that, the only one who can give that kind of freedom. Let's go back to last week's passage. The woman caught in the act of adultery. Right, And so she's caught in the act, but yet only the woman is brought to Jesus. So like cycling is an individual sport, golfing is an individual sport, adultery is not an individual sport. There should be two people, if they're caught in the act, who are brought to Jesus, but there's not a guy there. He gets off, gets away, is let go, whatever kind of sham that they set up to test Jesus. And only the woman is brought into the light. Only the truth about the woman is exposed. And it's hard, and it's humiliating, and it's difficult. But in the end, here's what she hears. Where are they who condemn you? They're not here. 
and neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. In the end, she is set free. Now think about the man for a little bit. He got away. Looks like he's free, right? But what does he live with? He lives with that sin hidden in the darkness, trying to keep it from coming into the light. He's lying about it. He has to go home to his wife and possibly children. There are other people. If he was caught in the act, they know about him. They know about his sin. So he has to worry, are they going to leverage that? Are they going to use that, right? And it eats him from the inside out. And so in the end, he didn't get caught. He wasn't brought into light. The truth wasn't exposed, but he's enslaved to his sin. And the woman is set free because he came to Jesus. Think about this in your own life. Let's say you went to your annual checkup, had them do a full body scan on you, and they found something that will kill you. What do you want them to do in that situation? You want them to tell you the truth? You want them to bring it into the light? It's going to be hard. It'll be really tough. You may have to change some things. You may have to start going to some treatments. But in the end, hopefully you will attack it and kill it and you will live. Or do you want them just to lie to you? Not tell you the truth about what they found. Not bring it into the light. Make your life a whole lot easier. Just go on, doing what you want to do, living the way you want to live. Don't have to change anything. But one day you just drop down and die. What would you rather have, right? This is sin in our life. Jesus says if you practice sin, you're a slave to sin. Right? But yet he also says if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. My friend, the best gift some of you may give yourself and give your family is to come into the truth this Christmas. It's just to be open and honest. Maybe you've got some things hidden in the darkness. You're keeping them away from the light, and you've held on to them for a while. Maybe the best gift you can give yourself and your family is to expose it, to speak the truth about it, to bring it into the light and find freedom in Jesus. Or you can just let it sit inside and eat at you and ultimately destroy you. Because when we practice sin, we're a slave to sin. And guess what? Sin pays people that does work. The wages of sin is death. But the gift, the gift of God is eternal life. And the rest of the chapter, 39 through the end, I just want to read it to you. It's so good. This is where it gets nasty. This is where they start calling each other's names. This is where they start talking about each other's mom. And so just, just listen to this. This is unique stuff in Scripture. Verse 39, they answered Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. They're taking a shot at Mary here. We're not born of sexual immorality. They're saying, your mom's a, because we have kids watching, a very promiscuous woman. That's what they're saying. 
to Jesus. They're, they're bringing Mary into the argument, okay? Verse 42, Jesus says to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are of your father, the devil. Get him, Jesus. And this is your will to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character. For he's a liar and he's a father of lies. But I tell you the truth. You do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? This is getting good, right? He's like, your father's the devil. Your father's not Abraham. Your father's not God. Your daddy's the devil, and you're in the family business. You do what your dad does, which is lie, cheat, steal, cuss, sin. You know, you're selfish. That's you. And I love it, because most of the time, Jesus is like super meek and kind and peaceful and passive. But here, he just bows up. He's like, somebody convict me of sin. I love that, right? He's just saying, bring it. You got nothing to stand on. Verse 47, whoever is of God, here's the words of God. And the reason you don't hear them is that you're not of God. And Jesus answered him, are we not right? Or the Jews, I'm sorry, the Jews answered them. Look what they're going to say to Jesus. Are we not right in saying, Jesus, that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? Now they're name calling, okay? They got nothing to stand on. They're like, you're a Samaritan, which is like a derogatory term. It's a slander. And they're like, and you're so crazy, you probably are demon possessed, right? They're coming after him. Here's how Jesus replies. I don't have a demon, but I do honor my father, and you dishonor me. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews says to him, you're not even 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself. And went out of the temple. Now that's good scripture right there. And there's a lot we could bring out of it. Let me just give you one thing. Is that Satan's influence over our lives isn't overt. It's covert. They don't even know that they're doing the works of their father, the devil. And some of us don't either. Like no one comes into church being like, my daddy's the devil. I'm in the family business. That's what I do. I just go around doing the works of my father, Satan. No one says that. But here's what people do say. I'm just going to do me. I've got my truth. I'm going to go my own way. I'm the authority. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's code for I do the works of my father, the devil. Some people don't even realize this. A true disciple, a true follower, a genuine believer says this. I do the works of God. I follow the will of God, not mine. My heart is wicked and deceitful. My flesh is prone to wonder, to sin, right? I obey God. He's my light. He's my truth. That's who I'm following. This is total difference. And so they're bickering and they're arguing and they're fighting. And I think they miss it. They miss that Jesus is God. And so he explicitly says it to them. Before Abraham, before Abraham, thousands of years, I am the self-existent one, the same name that God gave to Moses in the burning bush when he sent him into Egypt. So Jesus makes a specific claim. Have you missed it? Have you missed who Jesus really is? 
what he's offering you and the appropriate response you are to have, how do you know? When God asks you to follow him, when he asks you to walk in the light, when he asks you to abide in his word and walk in truth, do you do it? Or do you pick up a stone? Don't you call me a sinner? Don't you tell me I'm not my own master? Don't you tell me I'm a slave to sin? Don't you tell me I'm in darkness? Don't you tell me I don't know the truth? It's a great test. Do you do it or do you pick up a rock? And we don't pick up physical rocks, but what we do is we throw out things to destroy, discredit, disregard, and dismiss Jesus and his word. But this was me. I so resonate with this story and these believers here. Because as a young child, I got it. I had intellectual assent. I believed in Jesus. But I chased a lot of artificial lights. I I tried to search for my own truth. And I found myself in bondage to sin. And it wasn't until about halfway through college that I decided to drop my rocks on discrediting and dismissing and disregarding Jesus' teaching and his words. I decided to start truly abiding in him, longing and yearning for and desiring him. And ever since that day, I have seen things in a much greater light. I I have known a better truth, and I have lived more free than I ever could have imagined. My friend, this Christmas, I pray you wouldn't miss it. That you would drop your rock. That you would walk in the light. That you would acknowledge his truth. That you would abide and yearn and long for Jesus, his word and his teaching and his will. And that because of that, this Christmas, like never before, you would experience a freedom, a peace, a hope, a love, and a joy like nothing else. Let me pray for you, and then we'll close in worship. God, thank you so much for this passage, (laughs) how you leaned in and talked to some people who had some easy beliefism in you. And you showed them it's not just about believing things about you or doing things for you, but it's about abiding in, remaining, persisting, having a deep, growing, longing and intimacy relationship with you. So God, if there's anyone here who discovered that about themselves today, that they've been chasing artificial lights or been living in a false truth, God, that the offer's on the table for them to follow you. If they walk in the light, they will have life. So God, thank you for drawing us to you. Thank you for these words that you spoke that cut through the misunderstanding in our culture that that, that bring us into true light, into true truth. So God, we love you. We worship you. We honor you. God, there's anyone in here who is in bondage, in captivity, feels enslaved to sin. God, I pray that they would come to you and receive the gift of eternal life. No condemnation. 
no shame, no guilt that has been taken and paid for and put on the cross. And you offer to them life. It's in your name we pray, amen.